The word decision implies that you are choosing one thing over a whole lot of other things. In fact, in the very essence of the word means cutting. By virtue of your decision-making, you have eliminated all the other options. If you decide for something, it means that you are cutting out those options in favor of that one for which you have decided. And that is what making a decision means. And that is precisely why there are many indecisive people today. Because they do not want to cut out other options. Today, there are people that basically want to go three different directions all at the same time. It must be painful. I even read about the horse that died between two bales of hay because he couldn't decide which one to eat from first. (laughs) Years ago, there was a speaker who always wanted to basically bring the point home. And so he began his speech always with a question of his audience. He would ask, he'd say, there were three frogs on a log. The first frog decided to jump in the pond. How many frogs were left on the log? If you think two, raise your hand. That's what most people did. And he would say, wrong, wrong. Not two, three. Because the frog that decided to jump off the log never actually left the log. (laughs) And there are so many people who decide in their heads and never follow through on their decisions. So many people actually make decisions, but they never take action steps to implement these decisions. And the reason for that is because we do not want to cut out all the other options. Yet the Bible urges us to be decisive when it comes to our eternal future. The decision we make here and now will determine where we'll spend our eternity, where we'll spend our forever. We're not talking about a hundred years or a thousand years. We're talking on forever and ever and ever. Our postmodern culture today frown on decisive people. It really does. I remember not long ago, people used to frown on those who are indecisive people. Now it's the opposite. We praise those who are indecisive. Because keep your options open. Today you might feel one way, tomorrow you might feel another way. And feelings is the enemy of decisiveness. And yet, Complete reliance on feeling has become the gospel of our postmodern culture. And so, today we have churches filled with people who have just added Jesus to all the other stuff in their life. They included Jesus among all the other options in life. To them, Jesus is just an extra insurance policy just to be sure. But, beloved, listen to me. If there is a time in which we must challenge people to make decisions for Christ, it is now. Syncretism is rampant in the churches today. Syncretism, 
which is a mixing up of all sorts of religions and all sorts of philosophies and all put together, Allah, Muhammad, Jesus, Jehovah, everybody, just lump them all together, they all get you in the same place. And yet Jesus made it very clear, if you decide for Him, you must cut out all the other options. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate. That is Jesus only and Jesus alone. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will go through it. And narrow is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few will find it. And that is why He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus never, never, never used misleading words, never used ambiguous words about the cost of discipleship. He never used fine prints that you really have to look hard to find it. Uh, Never, never, never. He said, you come to me, you have to cut out all the other options. I am either Lord of all or not Lord at all. If you want eternal life, you must make a decision and follow through with it with action steps. You want to go to heaven? Then you must believe that Jesus only will get you there. In fact, you cannot enter into heaven if you believe that Jesus is one way among many other good ways. Today I want to bring the series of messages that we've been looking at the greatest lie to an end. I want to remind you that we have looked in details at the greatest lie. We looked in details of how that greatest lie caused Adam and Eve to spiritually die, and how this greatest lie today, thousands of years later, causing millions of people to spiritually die. We have seen how in Genesis 3.15, God promised Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus is far from just being a founder of a religion, or just one way among many ways, that He was the promised by God the Father to Adam and Eve. And every human being on the face of the earth must make a decision for Him or against Him, either for the greatest lie or for the truth. They must make a decision, either for Satan's oldest deception or for Jesus' redemption, either for man's way or God's way, either to come through the narrow gate or go through the wide gate. Either they receive eternal life in heaven or eternal life in torment. Either they receive life of peace and joy and contentment here and now and eternity with Jesus at the end, or they will choose the life of guilt and emptiness and confusion and then eternal damnation at the end. A decision must be made. A decision must be made. Every human being must make that decision. Indecisiveness is a decision for eternal separation from God. Inclusion of all other ways is that wide road which lead to death. Inclusion of so-called spirituality, which only means being united with nature, that in itself is absolute lie and it's a decision against Christ. Either Jesus alone or not at all. Earlier in the series of messages on the greatest lie, I gave you a detailed 
anatomy of hell as the Bible delineates it and explains it, mostly from the lips of Jesus. Something that a vast number of preachers have ceased to preach from is one of the most painful things because I know, as I know what the Bible said, there are people who are going there, and that is why it tears me up from the inside. I don't rejoice in talking about that miserable place. But the truth is, hell awaits all those who refuse to decide for Jesus alone. That is the truth, according to the Scripture. But today I get to talk to you about my favorite subject, next to Jesus, and that's heaven. I want to talk about heaven. I rejoice in speaking about heaven. I love thinking about heaven. I make all of my plans, all of my waking moments, all of my activities, all of my decision-makings has heaven in mind. And I want to tell you, first of all, that heaven is reserved only for those who have made a decision for Christ alone. Heaven is reserved only for those who have accepted Jesus as the only way to heaven. Heaven is reserved only for those who love Jesus and serve Jesus and obey Jesus in this life. Heaven is reserved for all who acknowledge their sin and their failure, and they sought forgiveness only from the Lamb of God who shed His blood for our sin. Heaven is reserved only for everyone who recognize that they can only be accepted to God the Father through God the Son. Heaven is reserved only for those who refuse to excuse sin, who refuse to rationalize sin, who refuse to explain away sin. Heaven is reserved only for those who confess their sin and seek God's power to overcome sin. Seven things the Bible tells us about heaven. First, The Bible teaches us that heaven is a real place. It's a real place. It is not a state of mind. It is not an abstract idea. It is not a wishful thinking. It is not a figure of speech. False teachers and false preachers through all generations have taught this stuff, but that is not the truth. Because when Jesus spoke about heaven, and remember, He's the one who came from heaven. When He spoke about heaven to His disciples in John chapter 14, He said, I go and prepare a state of mind for you. I go and prepare a figure of speech for you. I go and prepare an abstract idea. No. He said, I go and prepare what? A place for you. And in the Greek word, topos means a location. He did not say, I go and prepare a state of mind. He said, I go and prepare a place. And in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen being stoned to death and is about to go into heaven, we see he sees with his own spiritual eyes heaven open and the Son of Man standing on the right side of God. And then in Revelation chapter 4, the apostle John gives us a glimpse of heaven, and he said in chapter 4, he said, I looked and before me was a door standing open in heaven. Not an abstract idea, another figure of speech. Heaven is a real place with real people who have real bodies, and they have real life and real joy and real peace. There are real angels in heaven, and heaven is my real home. This is not my real home. Heaven is my real home. Amen. 
Amen. Secondly, heaven is a place of uninterrupted fellowship with God. When D.L. Moody was about to die, they asked him, what are you looking forward to the most in heaven? Well, they thought he was going to talk about the streets of gold and the pearly gates, and he said, I'm going to spend the very first thousand years gazing at the face of Jesus. He said, I don't care about those pearly gates and and streets of gold, whatever they may be. (laughs) And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Heaven is all about Jesus. Heaven is all about Jesus. And that is why for those of us who love Him, our greatest joy will be seeing Him face to face. Heaven is a real place. Secondly, heaven is a place of uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus. Thirdly, heaven is a place of rest from our battles. Listen to what John said in Revelation fourteen thirteen. John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Now, again, some people through the years interpreted this to mean that we're going to be idols in heaven. Are we just going to be lie down and soak the sun? Or they're just going to lie around and do nothing? Or they're just kind of uh, sit on these fluffy clouds and, and string our harps? And, no, 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 no. That's not what meant here. This may be the vision for the great society. It may be a vision for the New Deal. That is not the vision for heaven. We will be working in heaven. We will be working more than ever. In fact, the rest that he's talking about here is rest from the battles that we have, the spiritual battles, the battles with Satan and the battles with the flesh and the battles with the world. Here on earth, we are forever fighting temptations. We are forever fighting and trying to stop the world from trying to squeeze us into its mold. Here we are battling fleshly desires. Here we are struggling with spiritual forces in the heavenly places. But in heaven, there will be no sin. There will be no Satan because he's going to be bound and sent into the lake of fire. There will be no temptation that will take us away and pull us away from the love of Jesus because we're going to be with him. And there is no sin where Jesus is. Amen. Which brings me to the fourth thing about heaven. It's going to be a place of serving the Lord. It's going to be a place of serving Him. Revelation 22, 3 said, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. The Greek word for serve here indicates a joyful service, indicates an enthusiastic service, indicates delightful service. It's not going to feel like a chore. It's not going to be accompanied with fatigue and tiredness and disappointments and exhaustion. No, no. Our service is going to be filled and fueled with gratitude to God, gratitude to Jesus for saving us, gratitude to Jesus for redeeming us, gratitude to Jesus for bringing us to heaven from the first place. Our serving of our Lord will include reigning and ruling with Him. Did you get that? And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 23. He said, 
he will be saying to the faithful laborers, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over few things. I will make you rule over many things. You see, we got to be ready to reign and rule with Christ by reigning and ruling over our passions and our desires and our homes. We begin to learn to rule over our tongue. We have to learn to rule. This is the dress rehearsal for heaven. And my friend, I want to ask you, are you faithful with the little that God placed in your hand? Because your faithfulness with the time He's given you, with the money He's given you, with the energy He's given you, and with all the things that He placed in your hands, your faithfulness with what you've got here and now is going to decide on how much you're going to reign and rule with Him in heaven. That's what Jesus said. I don't make up the stuff. Heaven is a real place. Secondly, is a place of uninterrupted fellowship. Thirdly, heaven is a place of rest. Fourthly, heaven is a place of service. Number five, heaven is a place where knowledge abounds. First Corinthians 13, Paul said, For now I know in part, but then I shall know him as I am known. Here and now, we have questions, and we often cry to the Lord, Lord, why? Why is that illness? Why is this suffering? Why is this disease? Why is this sin? Why is this earthquake and hurricane? Why? Oh, but there, we're not going to be asking these questions. You won't have to ask these questions, because there you're going to see as God sees. You're going to understand as God understands. You're going to know as God knows. Amen. Amen. The sixth thing about heaven is this. It's a place of continuing glory. Please listen. When people who belong to Jesus spend more time planning their vacation or planning their retirement or planning where they're going to live and spend no time whatsoever thinking about where they're going to be forever, there's something wrong with your salvation. Paul said, constantly examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? He said, examine yourself. What you're doing in this life, in this world, is motivated by your heaven. How often have you thought about your eternal home? You cannot spend your life planning for this life alone and never think about heaven and tell me that you belong to Jesus. There's something wrong with that picture. Imagine not thinking or making plans for where you're going to be. Not for a hundred years or fifty or a thousand years. You're going to be forever. And furthermore, nothing is going to give you victory here and now more than thinking about your eternal home. Did you get that? You see, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the grief, and all of the afflictions that we experience right here can be overcome when you begin to think about your eternal home. Trust me. Try it. I know it works. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light afflictions. Paul is a challenge to me, personally. He really is. I mean, you, you think about this. He's saying, our light afflictions. What in the world is he talking? This man got beaten 
and got lashed 39 twice because the 40th would have killed you. That's they stopped at 39. He was stoned. He was left between life and death at least three times. He has been imprisoned and flogged. And he comes in here and says, for this light afflictions, I get a headache and I think I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> this man who got beaten so many times that they couldn't walk, and, and, and it says, for our light afflictions. Oh, so listen, listen, listen. This is the rest of the verse, okay? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says, every time I put my pain and my suffering and persecution and hatred and rejection by false teachers, every time I put those on one side of the scale, and then I put in the glory that is awaiting me in heaven on the other side, hands down, the glory pulls it down, and my pain like a feather. My affliction cannot be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed. That's why I told you, nothing lifts you up above all the difficulties and the troubles in life that we all face than thinking about your home in heaven, where you're going to be spending eternity with Jesus and with your loved ones who knew the Lord and are with Him in heaven. So let me ask you, are you suffering injustice? Think of your heaven's glory. Are you being lied about and by others? And are you feeling hurt and in pain? Think about your heaven's glory. Are you experiencing unfair criticism and unfair attack? Think of heaven's glory. Are you being misunderstood and mistreated for righteousness' sake? Think about heaven's glory. In fact, the word glory means, and a lot of people, again, don't get that right, but listen, glory means the revelation of the character of God in Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. In heaven... The character of God in Jesus Christ is going to be revealed in us. We will be transformed to be like Him. That we will have the very character of Jesus. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with Him. Where? In glory. That we will share in His glory. We will experience His character. Finally, Heaven is a place of perpetual worship. And this is another one of those things that is misunderstood by a lot of people through generations. People misunderstood what that means. And there are some who thought that heaven is going to be like a deadly 11 o'clock service <laughs> from which there is no escape. Let me share with you the testimony of an individual, a British friend by the name of Lord Riddle. Listen to what he testified. When he was a young man growing up in one of those deadly liturgical churches, he said, the concept of heaven was far more frightening to me than hell. Imagine this young man. Because, he said, I thought that heaven 
was going to be a perpetual 11 a.m. service from which there is no escape. He said, this was such a horrible nightmare, it caused me to be an atheist for 10 years. Listen, beloved, far from being deadly, liturgical, boring service, listen to what John said in 19.1 of Revelation. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The millions of believers from every age, from every generation and every nation the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, the angels and the musicians worshiping God who is at the very center of heaven. Imagine the shouts of hallelujah and amen as the crescendo of the heavenly singers and the fanfare of the celestial trumpet sound. Imagine what an exciting time that's going to be. I am sorry for you, frozen chosen. You're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time. Get ready for heaven. Loosen up. (laughs) C.S. Lewis was a man who's able to put things in few words. I envy his abilities. And he was talking about how heaven is far from being boring 11 o'clock services. (laughs) And he was talking about believers when they get to heaven and how they're going to feel. And it's a long quote, but let me give you just the last sentence. It is magnificent. He said, There beyond any possibility of doubt, you will say, Here at last is the thing I was made for. Are you made for heaven? If you're not, you can be today. Let's pray together. Father, Do not, please, Lord, allow this sermon, this message, to serve as a witness against that individual who has heard it, but continue not to submit to you as only Lord and Savior. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for your mercy today. We ask for your grace today. Open blind spiritual eyes. Turn hearts toward you. And Father, above all, let all of us who know you, who are looking forward to heaven, be sure not to go there alone. That we will tell our friends and our neighbors and our, those who are loved ones so that they can go to heaven with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.